Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Photographer Herb Snitzer said jazz is a statement about a people's desire and thirst for freedom. And with freedom, the sweetness of individuality and self-worth. Several of America's greatest 20th century musicians appear in a jazz memoir, Photography by Herb Snitzer. We'll hear about the exhibition on virtual display at the Bremen Museum later in the hour. Elgin Baylor changed basketball, and he should be far better known. Baylor displayed humility, artistry, and the courage to stand up by sitting down. Author Jen Bryant and Atlanta-based illustrator Frank Morrison join us to discuss their new book about Elgin Baylor for young readers, Above the Rim. First... If you have ever wondered why so many women adore shoes, a new documentary explores the various reasons. Adeline Gasana is the Atlanta-based filmmaker of High on Heels. He's with us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Would you give... Listeners, a brief summary of the documentary High on Heels. High on Heels is a short documentary film on high heels. High heels is an experience for women. It represents beauty, sexuality, sophistication, empowerment. So we go into the history of it and we touch on the medical health aspect of it and really just explain about how high heels is much more than just a shoe for women. Yeah, in fact, you provide history going all the way back to the 15th century. Would you tell us the first discovery of high heels? The first real known understanding of the high heel shoe really dates back to the 10th century. Persian cavalry men used high heel footwear to keep their foot in stirrups as they were riding horseback in war. So in many ways, heels, in those early days, it was an instrument of war. 
And then, of course, the evolution changed where high heels really became a symbol of aristocracy and high class. And many prominent figures from medieval times to the Middle Ages wore high heels as a symbol of power. And what was interesting in this whole dynamic is that as much as the heel transformed from this instrument war to symbols of power, it slowly gradually became a, a women's item. I was wondering what it was about the history and significance of women's love-hate relationship with high heels that motivated you to make this film. The inspiration really began with me and my producer friend, Lolo Coyote, and me and her working at film TV industry, and we were in between gigs. And so we wanted to do our own project, get our name behind something. And so we'll come up with all these ideas, you know, black farmers or gentrification, concepts like that. And then she was talking to me about how she has back pain. She has to go see a chiropractor regularly. And I was thrown back by that because when I see her, she looks very fit is in shape. So I, I didn't understand what, where back pain, because back pain you usually associate with people who are a little older. And she says, no, it's because of her years of wearing heels. And so we just, I was like, there it is. Let's do a documentary high heels. It was much more than this fashion accessory. It has so much layers to him. It's, it's an emotion behind it. We just went at it and we started the research phase. We came across a lot of these layers that we wanted to touch on. And it really made this documentary pop because of that nuance. Adeline, I have to tell you, one of my favorite parts of the film was the portion that featured the master cobbler. <laughs> he was fascinating, and, and his showing the anatomy of the shoe itself and his work. I don't know if many people realize just how skilled a profession that is, particularly since... A lot of people think of shoes as something disposable. Right, exactly. Um, and it's, I'm glad you brought that up because that's actually my favorite part of the documentary as well. And it's interesting, he's the only male figure who speaks up in, in the documentary. This is an ambitious pursuit. We're taking on a mainstream popular item from A to Z that is not just simply a fashion item, a subtle accessory. There's all this backstory to it. How is it created? How is it designed? And more so, how is it repaired? There's women who love their heels so much that they need a cobbler in their life. They need someone <laughs> who they can go on to on a regular to fix and repair their favorite items. The artistic and design appeal of the shoe comes out vividly in the film. I mean, some of the designs are almost unimaginable, and yet there they are on the floor and for sale. Adeline, what do you want women and men to take away from this documentary about high heels? In the more simple sense, to come on a journey with me. As a male filmmaker taking on a, a documentary on exclusively a woman's shoe item, um, I was a fly on the wall. I let them speak on this. I want people to go on this journey with me, that they'll pick up on the th things that fascinated me as well that I didn't know high heels began with men centuries ago, and then how it's evolving to what it is today. And then more importantly, from a male perspective, a lot of men who watch this will get firsthand feel of why high heels mean something much more than just the shoe. We put this documentary film in a three outline, where the first part is symbolic experience, the second part is health experience, and then the third part is lifestyle experience. 
I wondered when creating the documentary, as you include many different women from all backgrounds, models, entertainers, business women, doctors, had you ever considered interviewing drag performers or trans women, those who don't necessarily identify as female, but wear heels? Oh, absolutely. We wanted to make sure that we left no stone unturned. And as you know, this is a 45 minute documentary. It's considered a short documentary in a lot of categories. And we knew that that's what we wanted to aim for. Each of these topics we talked about could in and of itself be its own documentary. But we wanted to keep it really for 45 minutes in a concise driven plot in the sense because we wanted this really to be about women. While there was an area and a degree where we can go into the drag community as well as the trans community, we thought that even if we didn't touch on that, it still represents the same thing in that community. Heels represents feeling empowered, feeling confident, having people take you seriously when you walk into the room with the click clacking on the floor, right? So while we didn't have enough room to fit that aspect in, I don't think the dynamic detail of the documentary really takes away from those type of experiences as well. Well, you have kept us on our toes. (laughs) Thank you. You should pardon the expression. Adeline Gasana, congratulations and thank you again. Thank you. I appreciate that. (laughs) Documentarian Adeline Gasana, his new film, High on Heels, is streaming now on Prime Video. Just ahead, a brilliant basketball player with the courage to stand up by sitting down. This is WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Whenever Elgin played... People stopped what they were doing and watched. That refrain appears throughout the new young adult book, Above the Rim, How Elgin Baylor Changed Basketball. Jen Bryant is the author of the book. The illustrations are by Frank Morrison. They're with us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you very much. Thank you. Given his role in sports, as well as his role in 20th century American history, it's surprising that the name and story of Elgin Baylor aren't better known. How did this book come about? Well, you're right about that. Given his major contribution, both on and off the court, 
It is surprising. And really, over the course of my uh, writing career, which is now going on three decades, that's really become my mission is to find underknown, under-celebrated individuals who have contributed in some large way to their field. I've done artists and I've done inventors and musicians and poets, but Elton Baylor is the first athlete. And for me, Lois, really, I don't have a, a, a hard and fast line between art and athletics. I've always been interested in the creative artistic side of sports, uh, both as a participant and as a fan. So I've always been on the lookout for individuals who, you know, who have changed the aesthetic of their sport. And uh, about seven years ago, I was reading a biography of Julius Irving, who, if you'll know, is a, uh, a 76ers player, former 76ers player. And um, in it, he recounted a time when he was a young man and had a serious knee injury and was in a hip to ankle cast and could do nothing but lay on the couch and watch television. And one day he sees Elgin Baylor playing and it something, it gives him an, an epiphany really. And he begins to mentally rehearse how he will one day play the game of basketball based on the modeling that he sees before him in Elgin Baylor, the, this above the rim type of, of play. And he delights in the artistry and the creativity. And so when I'm reading that as a biographer, I'm thinking, hmm, that's interesting. I you know, I know a little bit about Elgin Baylor. Let me poke around a little bit more. So I listened to audio recordings. I watched a lot of videotape, um, read books, magazines, older sports magazines, and just built up a mountain of information about his early life. And then of course his, his action in 1959 when he uh, boycotted the game in Charleston, West Virginia to protest uh, racial discrimination. So it came along slowly as most of these things do, but it was uh, a wonderful uh, a story that really needed to be told for young people. Would you talk about how you use the story of Elgin Baylor's life to correspond with milestones in the civil rights movement? Uh, sure. I mean, um, his action uh, in, on January 16th, 1959, um, where his uh, Minneapolis Lakers, he was, he was the first first year player. He was a rookie NBA player. And in those days, the NBA only had eight teams. And it was, you know, fascinating to imagine the kind of, of travel and lives that they, they had much, much different than today. And they didn't really have a big fan base. But Elgin was really the star of the team. But he was turned away at uh, the hotel when they got to uh, West Virginia and also turned away at restaurants. And at that was enough. He said, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, they can't just let me out of a cage like an animal to play the game and not treat me like a human being the rest of the time. And this was, it was important in the book as I'm writing the text to make sure that it was clear that other things that off the court outside of athletics, Rosa Parks, the uh, Wichita, Kansas food counter uh, sit-ins and protests, the desegregation of schools in the South, 
um, it's important to, that young people know the context of what was happening in, in, at the same time and that this, you know, this was part of a, a larger movement of athletes and non-athletes, um, but he was really the first pro athlete to stage a boycott. So all the modern day, you know, protests and boycotts and kneeling at games that you see today really echoes back to this, to Elgin Baylor sitting out the game in West Virginia. Yeah. Frank, your dedication in the book reads, to all the children who love basketball as much as I love painting. Your illustrations are wonderful. And I love the picture where Elgin is airborne. And part of the text reads, in one smooth move like a plane taking off, he would leap higher and higher and higher, as if pulled by some invisible wire. Would you describe the picture you created for that? Oh, wow. First, thanks for having me. Uh, really enjoy your programming. Uh, Thank you. The picture, <laughs> great. The page you're describing, it's, it's, it's what we're talking about. Uh, the pri we have to go back to the prior page. And that is a page of the, a group of young individuals coming together and they're debating. So I would call this the great debate. And in this debate, they're going back and forth about bragging about who's better and who's this and who can do that and who can do this. And then out of the blue, if you look further back, you peer back, you see Elgin. He's doing a little crossover and coming up, coming up approaching this, this group of, of braggers and and trash talkers, you know, you have to tr talk trash. And, and <laughs> you just have to. And so instead of participating, he proves them all wrong. He goes over everyone. He goes over the gossip. He goes over the naysayers. And he flies through the air. And he does this wonderful finger roll that he just drops off gently into the hoop. And you have the background, you have the sun at his back, and it's a silhouette. And he's just coming, you have a little bit of that basketball hoop in the background, and he's just soaring above everyone. And that's just making sure that he, and I believe this picture shows that he was different then, even on the court, you would have seen it. He may not have participated in all that rugby, all that back and forth jarring. Of course, you're going to do it while you're on the court, but off the court, it's, it doesn't make any sense. It's you prove who you are on the court. And I think that's what this picture shows. You also have um, a son behind him, it, it has a halo effect, almost like an angel. Oh, yes, yes. And it's where you use the sun, I'm gonna play off of that. And I believe it's for all the fathers and sons and, and the people behind us that we're, we're walking ahead of with our talents. We're all walking, we're all using what we grew up with. And we're always, we're using our background, our family background, our heritage and our talents that were brought up I, my talent came from my mother and my, my grandfather were, were artists. And so when you put the sun in the background, it says you're moving forward. We're moving forward. And that's what I feel like it does. Beautiful. Throughout the book, we see examples of Elgin Baylor's quiet dignity. Was he as humble in real life? Yes, I think he was and is. Yes, he did. Uh, he did not. He liked to 
have his play speak for him. And it wasn't that he couldn't be chatty. I mean, if you, uh, you know, read the interviews with his uh, fellow players when they were traveling and whatnot, he was, he was very talkative and a storyteller. But, you know, on, on the court, he preferred to let his play speak for him. And he really eschewed any sort of anyone making a big deal about how he could play and what he could do. I mean, even when you watch the film reels, when he's being interviewed after he retired and they, you know, they have, they're interviewing Elgin Baylor as he's watching his own film reels and they're saying, wow, look, look at what you could do. He will just say, well, you know, there were probably other people who could do these things, but I don't know, you know, I just, that, that's just what came to me at the time. So he's, he's, he's very, uh, as we say in the book, it was, it felt spontaneous to him. And he, uh, he was just a wonderful player, a wonderful artist on the court. And I do think he uh, continues to be as humble to this day as he ever was back then. He is 86 years old now. Is he aware that you wrote this book? We have sent it to him, Yes. <laughs> Oh, I hope you get a response. I hope so, too. I hope so, too. Well, with the, I will say I went to the Naismith uh, Basketball Hall of Fame in Springfield, Massachusetts, and highly recommend that as a trip. The folks there were, were very generous with the information, and I had spent some wonderful time really getting immersed in early NBA history up there. NBA milestones in mid-20th century American history, all depicted in this book. Frank, I was hoping you would talk about the pictures you created of Rosa Parks and the group at the lunch counter sitting and being harassed as they quietly protested. Well, I just feel when I do have opportunities to paint our civil rights heroes, really, I just feel blessed. And I wanted to do the best I can, particularly on these images, because I hold them with high respect. Particularly with Rosa, I wanted to show she did get in good trouble, as John would say. And so as I painted her, she didn't look uh, apologetic for what happened. She looks stern. She Yes, it is. A, it's a very distinct portrayal of her. It almost brought to mind Confucius or some Chinese philosopher, you know, I guess her nonviolent protest. Yes, yes. yes. And, and, and what I also did is I love to play whenever I can pull that urban restoration or that mannerism into it, I use spray paint and oil on this canvas. And that way I can pull in, draw a lot of the, uh, the current, show how important it is now, bring the contemporary and show the past. So I juxtapose both of those together for this painting. Um, and then the counter, oh gosh, the black and white. So many times growing up, I watched uh, Eyes on the Prize and you know, it, it, it's, you know, I, for some reason, I just fell, fell in love with history then. Seeing what my mother and grandmother and grandfathers went through to have us, to, for me to be here today. And moving, now I live in the South. And I live, actually, my house is on an old plantation. 
that they turned into a subdivision. And every day I look out of that window and I think, oh my gosh, you know, who looked at that tree? Who, which one of my ancestors might've been on this plantation? or looked at across that street, at this tree line. What did that tree line mean to them? Was it a border? It, for me, it's this greenery, it's fresh air. I see hawks, but was that a border for them? And so when I do get a, a chance to look at, to, to go back and paint once again, history, I just, I, I show that this, you know, she's being heckled and she's being, you know, even with the military, they're looking straight ahead as if it's nothing can happen, nothing, they can't stop them. They're just there to stop them from violent, being violent, but not mental violence that's going on. They can still juror and talk all this stuff to her. But then I have, what is it all about? And it's about books. It's about education. And so I highlighted that one part uh, of the book, Red. And that's how the importance of that fire of education and understanding that we get from, um, from especially looking back and seeing how it was. Though we still have a long way to go, but we can say how it was. And then we use our history to move forward. The picture with Elgin Baylor sitting out the game, where he is seated on the bench with his teammates, and again, that quiet dignity. He's wearing a white shirt, a necktie, like so many of the other peaceful protesters, impeccably dressed for the occasion. And Jen, you write, sometimes you have to sit down to stand up. Was that a recurring theme for Mr. Baylor? This incident in West Virginia, and first of all, it's so funny that you should say that, because right before we got on this call, I was really staring at that that exact page and just marveling at Frank's work there, capturing that that moment in, I love it. But to get back to your question, he had uh, been turned away before when they had played in, in Carolina, and he had said to himself and to another teammate, you know, if this happens again, I'm going to do something. And um, so when they got to West Virginia, he was turned away at the hotel. The whole team then went to a hotel where everyone was welcome. And then he was turned away at restaurants and he had to eat in his room. And that uh, player that's pictured sitting next to him, Hot Rod Hunley, the white player, they were, they were good friends. And Rod had come to him that night because Rod Hundley was a West Virginia native. This was his home court here. He was from this area. He, all his family was there. He told his friends to come. He was very excited that they would get to see him, but also Elgin Baylor who was the star of the team. And when he saw that Elgin wasn't dressing, he tried to convince him to play. And Elgin said, Rod, I'm a human being. I'm not an animal let out for the show. I want to be treated like a human being. And Rod said, you know what? You're right. Don't play. And um, so, you know, that whole moment then has to be as a picture book author. It's really like writing poetry. You have to condense, condense, condense and try and capture a lot of information in a way that is effective emotionally for young readers. So sitting down to stand up is a phrase that I actually checked with the Library of Congress on uh, the origins. It's been used several times. There's a footnote in the back about it, but 
peaceful protesting sitting down has been used across cultures. And it's just a wonderful paradox, a wonderful verbal play. You know, it's sitting down is really standing up. And I just felt that that epitomized his quiet protest uh, that ended up being very, very effective. I wasn't surprised when I went to your website after I read the book to learn that you are also a poet because I think the use of these refrains, people stopped what they were doing, they stopped to watch, and then the fans noticed, the newspapers noticed. You use these recurring themes and refrains, and I think that the combination of your poetic text with Frank's beautiful illustrations, particularly the way you capture motion, Frank. Motion and emotion. It just makes for a marvelous book. I hope that many young adult and adult readers will partake in the story of Elgin Baylor. Oh, well, thank you. That's very, very generous. We, I, I, I feel very, very fortunate to, to work with Frank. And uh, it's a small miracle when you see words and, and uh, paintings come together in something like this. Is It is, I think, oh, I know, Frank, I, we feel like it's a celebration. When you find an individual who is underknown and has done so much, it's a privilege to be a part of it. And it's just a joy to see it come together so that more people know about him author Jennifer Bryant, and illustrator Frank Morrison. Their new book for young readers is Above the Rim, How Elgin Baylor Changed Basketball. Photographer Herb Snitzer has said jazz is a statement about a people's desire and thirst for freedom. And with freedom, the sweetness of individuality and sense of self-worth. We must salute jazz musicians, not only as jazz artists, which they were, but as American artists. His work is the subject of a major exhibition at the Bremen Museum, a jazz memoir, photography by Herb Snitzer. He joins us now, along with curator Tony Casadante. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you very much. Thank you, Lois. Glad to be here. Herb, you have photographed icons. Louis Armstrong, Nina Simone, Miles Davis, Dizzy Gillespie, Duke Ellington, John Coltrane, and Count Basie, among others. When did your interest in photographing jazz musicians begin? Oh, a long time ago. 1958, when I was uh, commissioned by Metronome Magazine to do a study, a visual study of Lester Young. 
the great tenor saxophonist of the Count Basie Orchestra at that time. And I was just so captivated by what I was feeling as much as what I was seeing. It was, it was uh, quite a jolt to my emotional system. I never anticipated that I would get so involved with the music, but I have and have still am after all these many years. I'm curious about how you developed relationships with these artists. Would you go to particular clubs, their hangout spots, uh, introduce yourself? Were, were you invited to their parties? Well, I did become part of the jazz scene in New York at that time, and uh, it, it just uh, was almost accidental. All of those wonderful photographs I made of uh, Louis Armstrong, I made while we were on tour, and I was on his bus, and we were just hanging out. And, and I really mean hanging out. I mean, jazz musicians are a breed apart. I just love them. <laughs> Now, your photography career spans more than 50 years. Tony, why does the exhibition focus on the years between 1957 and 1964? During that period, Herb was a young man, grew up in Philadelphia. When he finished art school, he heads to New York to, you know, make his mark on the world. And as he said, the job for Metronome, he had been freelancing for a while, was a year after he was in New York. And then that opened up the world of jazz for him and a permanent position on Metronome magazine, which again got him into the community. The focus of the exhibition for that period was it was a very rich time, a great deal of social change, and Herb was kind of right there on the pulse of it. And that is really kind of a core of his work. Herb is still a working photographer. I'm sure it gets a little tougher now with his age and COVID, but he is actively documenting his entire life. But that particular period was a, was a particularly strong period in Herb's career, and it's kind of the focus of the exhibition. And then we deal with a later period when he came back to jazz and reacquainted with a lot of these same artists in the 70s and 80s and into the 90s. And then we also have other aspects of the exhibition that deal with his social work and uh, social issues that he's documented throughout the arc of his career. The main focus is that early period, but the exhibition is rather expansive and we have a, a, a lot of different subjects that are covered. Herb, what were you hoping to reveal about African-American jazz artists that mainstream, predominantly white newspapers and magazines were not showcasing during that era? They couldn't ignore Louis Armstrong or Duke Ellington, Dizzy Gillespie, these, Miles Davis, certainly. These were all crossover artists and were accepted by the white world. I mean, that's pretty obvious today in looking back as to how these men and women integrated themselves within the bigger community. One of my favorite 
is Nina Simone. I mean, I was called by the Colpix Records to do a photo session with Nina uh, in anticipation of their, their publishing her new uh, record. So I got to meet her and we became fast friends. We were pretty much the same age, had the same political viewpoints about things and just stayed in touch with each other all those years. I know a lot of people think she was very difficult, but I loved her and that was important for me. And she was an amazing artist. She was a great artist, just wonderful. Can you tell us about your parents' refugee story? Well, that, they were uh, immigrants uh, coming to this country uh, when they were very young. My father was six, and my mother not much older, and they settled in Philadelphia and created their own groups and uh, protected them themselves in that way. Were they the ones who introduced you to jazz? No, they had nothing to do with the jazz world. They, they were hardworking first generation, or I'm first generation American, but my parents, uh, they just had to make a living. They had to survive. And uh, I was pretty much stifled by that kind of world. And I knew that sooner or later I was going to break out and go to New York, which is where I always wanted to be anyway. What does this exhibition reveal about the connection between Jews, jazz, and the African-American community? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, The fact that there were many uh, Jewish photographers which was interesting, photographing jazz. Most of them are gone now. I think I'm one of the very few that has outlived everybody for better or worse. So the connection is an obvious connection. The the struggle of uh, Jews in America, the struggle of jazz musicians to, to live without the fear of the cops, which uh, I always felt was a a tragic moment in the history of uh, Black relationships and Jewish relationships, certainly with the Civil Rights Movement, which I was involved with. Those two groups came together. They just realized that they were ready to join each other, and uh, they did during that time. number of rabbis, the number of influential Jewish showbiz people. It was was really natural for them to come together. Yes, I read that. You have said injustice for one is injustice for all. And I was wondering what advice you might have then for aspiring photojournalists or photographers today who want to document our current socio-political climate, protests, activism, and so on. It's very difficult, Lois. It's that simple. The, the men and women coming up today 
are having a heck of a time making a living just photographing jazz musicians and jazz artists. It's just, uh, it was a moment in time. It was like when all those guys came together for the Declaration of Independence. I'm not comparing the two, but at a given time, that's what happened in the world of music. I mean, uh, Duke Ellington, by far the, the most wonderful jazz composer of the 20th century. I mean, you just don't have power people like this anymore. Or maybe maybe they are out there, but I, I don't see them. And uh, that's a tragedy. I, I wish there were a, a new Nina Simone who would get out there and really raise hell. I think she would have had a ball with Donald Trump. <laughs> There's no doubt in my mind, and that's part of that's part of the gift that jazz musicians in those days had. They were part of the civil rights movement. They were early supporters of the civil rights movement, going back to the late '40s, early '50s. It was a heck of a time. I loved it, and I was all of 24. Wow, I know you revere Duke Ellington and his music. Can oh, you, I do. Can you share some stories of your experiences photographing him? He was just a, a notch above all when it came to doing what he did, which was that he and Louis Armstrong just changed the course of the music. I mean, Duke Ellington was a very sophisticated composer. And, and a band leader. He was always traveling with his band. He had to make money to keep his band together. After the Second World War, big band music uh, gave way to uh, almost uh, classical uh, music, of trios and quartets, and you know, the Miles Davis Quartet, John Coltrane. It became part and parcel of the American scene. But yet, blacks had a hard time, a very hard time, especially coming here in the, in the South. I mean, it was just really interesting stories galore. The one I loved the most was Dizzy Gillespie, for a short period of time, had a, a big band, and he was touring the South and they, in a bus, and they said, they found themselves without hotel arrangements. Somehow it, it dropped through the cracks. They pulled up next to this hotel and Dizzy said, now hold on people, let me take care of this and, and stay in the bus until I think everything's okay. So he goes in and he talks to this young re reservation clerk, a young man, and he said, uh, I, I'd like X number of rooms uh, for uh, my uh, band. And the young man said, well, I can't do that. We can't serve black people. You have to go somewhere else. So in the meantime, he had had Dizzy put on a red fez on his head. And he looked at this young guy and said, black? Who's black? I'm North African, can't you tell by my face? 
And the young, the young kid just didn't know what to do. He said, well, okay, and he let the band stay. I mean, it was just, things like that happened all of the time. Talking about some of the photos themselves, the photos are so gorgeous. I'm looking at one, um, two pages, one of Thelonious Monk at the piano at the Randall's Island Jazz Festival. And then on the opposite page, you captured him playing ping pong. And he has such glee and intensity in his eyes. I'm amazed the paddle itself looks like you captured the vibration or the action of it. Can you tell us something more about that? Monk was, he, he lived on a different level. I mean, he was the strangest, but most loving of all the men and women that I uh, met. He just lived on a plateau like Duke, just his own person. Nobody tried to imitate him. He didn't try to imitate anybody else. And uh, I was told that he loved ping pong. And I was always a pretty good ping pong player. So I worked it out with the Baroness, the Konenslager. She protected Monk and uh, took care of him financially. She was a Rothschild. So he was playing at the Jazz Gallery on the down in the village and at the end of the evening, which was now like three o'clock in the morning, we drove over to her house. She had a Bentley and I had a beat up VW. Well, anyway, we started playing, just hitting the ball back and forth, back and forth. And I said, you ready to play, Monk? And he nodded and we started and we went at it. And uh, I lost all three games. (laughs) that I played them, but it was such a joy to be able to do that with this great player because Monk was really super. People thought he was a little loony, but he wasn't. He was a great, great pianist. It was just wonderful. I mean, those kinds of stories happened all the time. I can give you one more if you have the time. Yeah. It, It was at Carnegie Hall in 1968. February 23rd, I'll never forget that date. And we're backstage. We we had come together because of uh, the 100th anniversary of the birth of W.E.B. Du Bois, the great black intellectual. And so I was backstage because I paid a little extra and you could get backstage in those days. So there we were, I found myself standing next to James Baldwin, Dr. Martin Luther King, Ossie Davis, and me. Oh my. 
right? And I didn't have a camera. <laughs> I, I just, you know, and by 1968, I was doing other things and, and I didn't walk around with my camera, which I should have. And there, the, the, and what I found out, which was just shocking to me in a way, was that Martin Luther King Jr. was no bigger than me. And I'm a pretty small guy. And James Baldwin was even smaller than me. It, it just overpowered me with, with uh, joy and fun to know that, uh, you know, this man who changed the course of history was no bigger than me. Ah, greatness looms large. One of the most famous of your works is a gorgeous photo of Louis Armstrong. He looks very pensive, and he's wearing a Star of David. This was taken at Tanglewood, Massachusetts, in 1960. What can you tell us about that photo, Herb? We were on the bus going from New York to Tanglewood, and Lewis was a smoker. And uh, he was just sitting in the seat in the bus, his shirt open, revealing a Star of David, which was given to him by the Karnofsky family. The Karnofskys took in this little boy named Lewis and protected him, fed him, clothed him, took care of him as a young man. So that he, he never forgot that because as he got old and, and they gave him the Star of David as a birthday present and he wore it his entire life. Just one of those great stories of uh, humankind where uh, this kind of thing could happen. And Lewis never forgot it. I see skies of blue, clouds of white, bright blessed days, dark sacred nights. And I think to myself, What a wonderful world. The caveat that I put to the story is that he always had a Jewish bass player in his group. Jack Leshberg, Mort Herbert. These were all white guys and everybody else was black. And I am convinced that this was payback on the part of Lewis. You think it was deliberate? Very deliberate, yes. Pops was very deliberately making a statement, a political statement. They all were, by their very presence, by the fact that people were hanging photographs of black artists on their walls in, in middle America. I mean, if that isn't a revolution, I don't know what is. I can't tell you how much that era influenced me as a person, let alone as a photographer. Well, I think that comes out in your art. Tony, you mentioned the part of the exhibition when Herb's activism is showcased. Can you tell us about that pivot 
in Herb's career, focusing more on activism and documenting protests? Yeah, I think it was, there, there was both a pivot, but I kind of see them more as, as parallel courses. You know, as a photographer, Herb was doing it for a living. I mean, it's how he made his living. So, you know, he was fortunate that he had what he loved, the jazz photography that was also paying his bills. But just being a photographer and just exploring the world and commenting on the world, whether it's social injustice, however he saw it, and because it was heightened through his professional work, it always went in his private work. The one thing I will say about the exhibition that's a little interesting and kind of brings it to today a little bit more. Exhibition curator Tony Casadante and photographer Herb Snitzer. A jazz memoir, Photography by Herb Snitzer, will be on virtual display at the Bremen Museum through December. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., our guest will be author Connor Town O'Neill. His new book about Nathan B. Forrest addresses monuments, memory, and the legacy of white supremacy. Special thanks to everyone who contributed during our pledge drive. We appreciate your support, and thank you for listening to member-supported WABE Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.